Join Global Genes and the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine for the annual Rare Drug Development Symposium, June 6th and 7th in Philadelphia. The symposium will focus on the drug development process and is designed to connect, educate, and inspire rare disease advocates. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash RDDS. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Imago Biosciences is developing therapeutics that change the behavior of malignant blood cells by targeting an enzyme that regulates gene transcription. LSD1 is an epigenetic enzyme that controls how genes are turned on and off in specific cells and plays a key role in the rare bone marrow cancer myelofibrosis. We spoke to you, Reinhoff Jr., CEO of Imago, about myelofibrosis, the company's experimental therapy, Bimetastat, to treat the condition, and the case for targeting epigenetic processes to address proliferative diseases of the bone marrow. You, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Danny. We're going to talk about myelofibrosis, Amago Biosciences, and your experimental therapy and development to treat proliferative diseases of the bone marrow. Your lead drug candidate targets an epigenetic enzyme. Let's start with epigenetics. For people not familiar with the term, what is epigenetics? It's a term that was coined uh, a long time ago by Charles Waddington that uh, was to describe uh, changes in gene expression or at that time uh, phenotypes without changing the DNA code. And so what that's come to mean today is modifications, generally chemical modifications, like the addition of a methyl group uh, or an acetyl group or some kind of small molecule group that's floating around in the cell to various proteins that are regulating the expression of a gene. Uh, so these these changes are not modifications necessarily of the DNA code, although they could be modifications of the code itself, these chemical modifications, but essentially they're non-heritable changes that are made to proteins like histones, transcription factors, RNA, and in some rare instances, DNA, without changing the code. What's the case for targeting epigenetic processes? Well, uh, it's been a long road, actually, trying to connect development with uh, and the response of the environment to uh, changes in gene expression. So, as you know, every cell has the same code, same DNA code. Every cell has the same amount of DNA and the same DNA, but, of course, each cell expresses a different set of genes that characterize the cell that it is, like a liver cell or a brain cell. And it, and it turns out that most of those changes uh, are a result of epigenetic changes, obviously not in the code itself, but in how the code is read. 
And those changes, you know, are typically, uh, uh, you know, as I say, the small molecules that modify the proteins that lead DNA. And it turns out that a lot of diseases, including cancer, hijack these systems uh, to uh, enforce or to force the cell to have, say, proliferation or, or doubling when they really shouldn't be, when they should be uh, cells that uh, ordinarily are just doing their function and are quiescent. So cancer uh, and development in biology have really seized on the examination of epigenetic changes that characterize uh, both of those processes. Epigenetics has traditionally been a, a tough area to target. Why is that? Well, I, what I would, yeah, I, I mean, it's a fair question. I think the uh, there there are literally uh, probably eight or nine different epigenetic modifications uh, that occur across a broad range of substrates. You know, as I said, DNA, RNA, um, histones, etc. And there is there is not one specific modification that dictates uh, everything downstream. They kind of work in in combination. So, uh, you know, if you targeted one particular protein or one particular epigenetic modification, uh, you're getting part of the story, but not the whole story. And so, for highly proliferative diseases. Uh, where the cells are dividing constantly, the, that's being driven by a multitude of processes. You know, lots of different mutations are, are contributing to that. Uh, and so targeting a single epigenetic enzyme or single epigenetic modification oftentimes hasn't been sufficient. On the other hand, a disease like myelofibrosis or essential thrombocythemia, which, uh, you know, at the blackboard level, are proliferative diseases, but they're much more indolent compared to, say, breast cancer or small cell lung cancer, where there's they're the highly proliferative, and it's really proliferation that kills you. There, in the in the setting of the uh, more indolent types of cancers, you have a much better shot at at controlling the disease or managing the disease by targeting epigenetic uh, types of enzymes. Your lead indication is in myelofibrosis. What is it? Myelofibrosis is a, a disease of the bone marrow that is acquired through uh, essentially one of three mutations um, that are now well characterized and are found in all of the related disorders uh, to myelofibrosis as well. And myelofibrosis is essentially what it sounds like. It's, it's a, a a scarring and fibrosis of the bone marrow uh, to the extent that uh, it's hostile and incompatible with normal blood cell development, which we call hematopoiesis. So essentially, myelofibrosis is an acquired bone marrow failure syndrome. And as a result of the bone marrow slowly being filled up with scar tissue uh, like fiber, uh, the stem cells that really uh, drive blood cell development uh, leave and try to find a more favorable environment, and, and that typically is the spleen and liver initially, and those organs become quite enlarged. In addition, because of these activating mutations in a very you know subset of cells, 
the uh, the patient's experience of the disease is one of intense fatigue, uh, night sweats, fevers, itching, uh, weight loss, uh, those sort of constitutional symptoms which make their lives miserable. And so really, uh, myelofibrosis is, even though it's characterized as a bone marrow failure syndrome, the the uh, patient experience is one of, of like a chronic inflammatory disease. What's the prognosis for patients with the condition? The prognosis hasn't changed significantly uh, since it was first described, really. Uh, patients who come to diagnosis, usually because of their symptoms, fatigue, etc., have a median survival of about 5.5 years. Are there available therapies today? And, and if so, how effective are they? Yeah, there are. In, you know, uh, 2011, a drug came onto the market called ruxolitinib, uh, otherwise known by its trade name as, as Jacophy. That has been used for that has been used for the management of symptoms, uh, and uh, it also has an effect on the size of the spleen, which can be a problem in a minority of the patients. And so, Jacophy has been the backbone and really the only treatment available that that's somewhat specific for the disease. Uh, uh, and recently there's been another uh, drug that's very similar to ruxolitinib that's come on the market, but they work essentially the same way. And even though the patients feel quite a bit better on that drug, it doesn't substantially change the progression of the disease. So patients who, with myelofibrosis invariably progress, and they can go... Uh, for quite a long time, but as I said, the median survival is about five, five, six years. And those patients typically die of infection or they can transform into acute myeloid leukemia, which is a devastating uh, turn of events. You're developing an experimental therapy with a unique mechanism of action. What is it and how does it work? Well, uh, we have <clears throat> developed an inhibitor of, as you point out, an epigenetic enzyme called lysine-specific demethylase, which is an enzyme that's critical for uh, the whole hematopoietic development system, meaning the production of platelets, white blood cells, and red cells. And myelofibrosis is really, it could be boiled down to one particular cell called the megakaryocyte, which is the cell that makes platelets. And that's true also for its related disorder called essential thrombocytemia. And the megakaryocyte is the cell in the bone marrow that makes the growth factors that remodel and destroy the bone marrow, as well as secreting these inflammatory cytokines, which give rise to the symptoms that plague patients. And LSD1 is an absolutely essential enzymatic activity for the function of a megakaryocyte and even the production of megakaryocytes. So our drug inhibits uh, LSD1 for a small portion of the 24-hour dosing cycle such that those megakaryocytes are brought under control. You see a reduction in those growth factors that are remodeling the bone marrow and you see a reduction in the in plasma you know, of patients, the blood of the patients. 
of the cytokines that really drive their symptoms. What is LSD-1 doing in a patient with myelofibrosis? How does the enzyme differ than it might in a person without the condition? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, LSD-1 is doing two important things in the disease state. It is, it, it is enabling a malignant stem cell, the stem cell, the hematopoietic blood stem cell that has acquired the specific mutation that is driving the disease. And it's enabling its ability to self-renew and stay as a stem cell. Uh, and likewise, to be, to make a megakaryocyte, you need LSD1. And those megakaryocytes with this mutation are activated. And LSD1 basically reduces the number of uh, malignant megakaryocytes and tones down or tamps down the expression of these inflammatory cytokines and growth factors that characterize the disease. And how targeted is your therapy? Does it affect only the mutated blood stem cells, or does it affect healthy cells as well? That's a great question. Uh, in, in mouse models uh, of myelofibrosis and AML, acute myeloid leukemia, we see differential targeting of the malignant stem cells. So we see a decrease in those, that particular kind of cell without affecting the normal hematopoietic stem cell, their numbers or their function. Uh, so we're looking to see if that's also the case in our patients. What's known about the drug from studies to date? Well, we have treated uh, three different populations of patients uh, in the first study that we did, we treated patients with acute myeloid leukemia who had relapsed or were refractory to their treatment. We also treated patients with high-risk myelodysplastic syndrome, which is a disease that typically, in that setting of high risk, they typically develop AML. And we also have been studying the drug, as you point out, in myelofibrosis, and we'll soon start a study in the central thrombocythemia where the platelets are very high. And our observations are that if the drug is well tolerated, it's orally available, it's in a small capsule, uh, you know, patients have no trouble taking it, uh, the tolerability and side effect profile is, is what I would say very favorable for a drug of this type. And in, to jump ahead, in the myelofibrosis study, we've treated about uh, 36 patients or so uh, in two different groups, one where we were increasing the dose and trying to identify the right dose. And once we established that, then we went into uh, a more fixed kind of dosing set of rules. And these are patients who have failed loxolitinib, so they've gone through the standard treatment and have progressed on the drug uh, or, you know, it's lost its effect or they can't tolerate it for various side effects and they've come into the study. So it's a difficult patient population to treat. They have no alternatives. They have no therapeutic uh, alternatives. And in a majority of those patients, uh, both in the first part and the second part of the study, uh, they, their spleen volumes uh, are reduced and their symptom scores are reduced. So it, it 
it's, I would say it's it's promising from from both of those angles, and as I said, it's well tolerated. Is the expectation that your drug would be used as a monotherapy, or would it be used in combination with other agents? Well, we've only studied uh, Belmadamstat, our drug, uh, otherwise known as IMG seven two eight nine. We've only studied it as monotherapy in patients with myelofibrosis, and that'll be true for uh, essential thrombocythemia as well. Uh, there, it, you know, we will probably initiate this year uh, adding Bomadamstat or seven two eight nine to a regimen of ruxolitinib, where the patients are starting to lose ground. Uh, with ruxolitinib or where the, the response has been suboptimal. Uh, but we haven't done those studies yet, so I can't really answer the question. And, you know, there may be some advantage. Um, there may not be. Uh, so for right now, we're using it as monotherapy in patients who um, have not done well with ruxolitinib. There's some suggestion it may have activity against COVID-19. What's the thinking there? Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, most of the symptoms that patients with myelofibrosis have uh, are a consequence of these inflammatory cytokines. Uh, and it's, it's clear that when you inhibit LSD1, those inflammatory cytokines, whether it's in a mouse model or whether it's in a patient with myelofibrosis, are all tamped down, which accounts for why they have improvements in their, in their symptoms. If the cytokine profile of myelofibrosis is similar to the cytokine profile that one sees in COVID, then there may be an application uh, uh, for Belmadamstat or IMG7289 to reduce the inflammatory cytokines. I happen not to know what the inflammatory cytokine profile is in COVID. I can tell you it's highly variable in patients with myelofibrosis. But the idea is that, that those patients uh, with COVID who are starting to have the so-called cytokine storm, if it is similar, then there might be a rationale for using something like uh, Belmadamstat. Is anything being done to explore that possibility? No, not right now. I mean, uh, there several collaborators have reached out to us and asked us the same question you've asked, uh, and I think they're contemplating... Uh, a protocol for that. But I think it's premature. Um, as you know, there are probably more studies with COVID now than there are patients. <laughs> probably not quite, but there, there are an awful lot of studies that are getting initiated uh, for treatments directly of the virus, not so much uh, of the consequences of the virus like the cytokine storm. So I think it'll. Uh, we'll just have to see uh, how all the landscape shakes out on this one more than happy to collaborate with somebody who is doing it. The COVID-19 trials have been among the few that haven't been disrupted by the pandemic. Has the outbreak had any impact on your ability to conduct trials? Yeah, I would say that uh, many of the sites that we're working at um, have had to redirect their resources uh, to taking care of those patients and keeping, you know, uh, prospective patients, you know, away from the clinic as far, as much as they possibly can. Uh, the patients who are enrolled in the study continue to be, uh, you know, um, 
in the study, so that it hasn't disrupted that, but it has ha- had an impact on uh, new new patient enrollment. You, Ron Hoff Jr., CEO of Imago Biosciences. You, thanks so much for your time today. It's my pleasure, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.